power. On the podcast, mass market drivers on the moon pound the earth with high velocity paperbacks. But instead of surrendering, humanity asks for more. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Will McCarthy, author of the great new near future science fiction novel, Rich Man's Sky. The novel is about an attempt to infiltrate and thwart the plans of four oligarchs who have established control of near earth orbit, either because they are successful startups or because they are successful vulture corporations or both. It's fun stuff and the space tech is absolutely spot on, well-researched and exciting. So that's coming up. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, the March Tim Powers Modern Fantasy ebook sale continues, but it's wrapping up. March discounts on ebooks from the weird and wonderful mind of multiple World Fantasy Award winner Tim Powers. $2 off ebook Force Perspectives and $1 off ebooks Alternate Routes, Earthquake Weather, Expiration Date, and his wonderful collected stories Down and Out in Purgatory. Ebook discounts apply at all Bain ebooks distribution outlets. Sale ends March 31st, 2021, when the clocks strike midnight. <laughs> Hey, I want to welcome Will McCarthy back to the podcast. Hi, Will. Howdy. Nice to see you. Um, haven't actually seen you in several years, maybe a decade or two. I think is, is that right? Yeah, I, uh, uh, you you very kindly put me up uh, in uh, in your apartment in New York uh, back in. I guess it was. I, it must have been two thousand and one. It was must have been right after nine eleven. Um, and I'm not sure we've seen each other since 20 years. <laughs> My hair has gone gray since then. Well, um, let me tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about Will. Previously a flight controller for Lockheed Martin Space Launch Systems and later an engineering manager for Omnitech Robotics and founder, president, CTO of Raven's Brick, Raven Brick, LLC. Um, Will now writes from his home in Colorado and, uh, I think you are still uh, heavily involved in um, in making patents work for others, and you hold several patents yourself. Um, yeah, I, I hold thirty-one, um, and uh, working on another one now, actually. And these are in things like nanostructured optical materials, and and what are you working on? Or you can't you the, say? The one <laughs> The one that I'm working on uh, is, is not nanostructured optical materials. It has to do with brewing beer. Uh, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, I don't want to say too much about it. Something useful to, to mankind. Far more useful than... 
than anything electronic. structured optical material. Yeah. Yes. Um, Will is the author of the Queendom of Saul series of science fiction novels, which we've uh, we reissued in some great vein uh, trade paperbacks. It's a wonderful series set in a nano and quantum transformed future uh, solar system. He's the author of Antediluvian. And uh, now at booksellers everywhere is um, this thing, Rich Man's Sky. This is the 3D version. This We get it just out of the 3D printer, I think. Um, Rich Man's Sky by Will McCarthy. Um, so uh, who are the four horsemen? Let's, let's talk about what this is. Um, well, uh, the, uh, the genesis of the book was really very simple. Um, you know, we have uh, high net worth individuals right now uh, actually operating their own space programs. Uh, that's not the future, that's right now. If you roll that out into the future, um, that's really kind of where I where I started uh, with this. Uh, the, when you have space programs that are run by private individuals, uh, you have good and bad aspects of that. Um, uh, individuals, highly driven individuals, are a lot better at getting things done than than committees and and whole governments, um, and so that that can be a good thing, um, but. Also, those those uh, people tend to have large egos, and um, so any any mistakes or oversights uh, they they make, uh, you know, they're not they're not as good at at uh, covering for that kind of thing. And so, the four horsemen are these four high net worth individuals who uh, basically run run the space programs of of thirty years from now, um, and. They're, they're four very larger, you know, very big ego, larger than life kind of people um, with uh, lots of people working for them. Um, and they've each kind of staked out their own uh, uh, claim on the, on the resources and, and territories of space. Uh, and uh, they want different things. Some of the things that they want overlap, some of them conflict and a lot of them conflict with the goals of governments on Earth. They've gotten, so, I mean, they've they've cornered the market in a way. They're sort of robber barons um, of of a future, uh, perhaps. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and you know, you see, uh, uh, wealth is distributed according to a power law, not a not a bell curve. Uh, so you don't have, you know limits to how large people yeah i've noticed that i'm not on that part of the bill the, uh, the power the upper magnitudes are, have not reached me yet so, anyway. right right uh but you know we see we see right now that there are people with with resources that so vastly dwindle the the or you know um the the resources of common people are are minuscule in comparison and that trend is going to continue also. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that the rest of us are necessarily going to get poorer, although it might. Uh, but certainly the rich are going to get richer faster than the poor are going to get poorer. And that that trend, I think, is only going to accelerate over time. And so, yeah, if you're the first one to access the resources of space, you get the first mover advantage. Uh, you get a lot of installed base that's difficult for other people to compete with. 
Um, and so if you already have the infrastructure uh, to exploit space resources, it's very difficult for new entries into the uh, into the space. Yeah. Well, you've, you've known a lot of, you've been involved with a lot of entrepreneurial activity. Um, are these, I can assume these characters are sort of based on the kind of, kind of people that you sometimes run into in that, uh, that space. Yeah, I haven't been involved in the, uh, uh, the space startup community, but I've been involved in the space program directly and I've been involved in the startup community. And I'm not going to say very much about who these characters are actually based on, uh, but uh, your, your uh, suspicions are maybe not far off the mark. Well, tell it. All right. So as the book opens, all four of these guys are in space. Some of them live there and some of them have come up um, for, for their own purposes. All right. Um, uh, that's right. Except um, the, one of the horsemen actually is earthbound. That's Sir Lawrence Edgar the Killian. British guy. Um, and he, the British guy, and he runs, uh, he's kind of, his, his thing is the moon, um, but he's getting too old. Uh, he, He's getting too old to skydive. He's getting too old to race motorcycles. Uh, all this stuff that he used to do is getting too old to do. And he he's worried that he's getting too old to uh, to go to space also. Uh, but yes, uh, uh, two of the others are in space already. And, and a third one uh, travels to space kind of uh, semi-permanently um, in the early part of the book. Um, and the reason for that is simply that, uh, you know, they, when they're on earth, whether they like it or not, they're kind of under the thumb of, of government. No matter where you are on earth, there's a government uh, that runs police forces and armies and, and trade barriers and other things that can kind of thwart you. So to the extent that they're able to, they've moved the, their earth production facilities into the third world um, where there's less governmental thumb on top of them. And they're trying to move as much of it as they can into outer space where there's no government at all. Um, and by moving themselves into space, they really uh, are, are to a large extent beyond the reach of earthly law or so they think. Mm -hmm. Well, the uh, sort of maybe uh, talk about the situation on earth. Um, we're in a we're in a future. The U.S. is still around, but it it is engaged in a series of like cartel wars with some. Uh, is it, maybe you explain it? <laughs> what everything is like on Earth? Well, where I was going with that, um, you know, the uh, the world seems to be headed out of a, a peaceful period and into a period of more kind of sustained low-level conflict. Um, and, you know, the cartels are uh, maybe just kind of a stand-in for, for all the petty wars of, of, the, of the past. You know, this is a, an, easy, an easy foe to pick on uh, because these are organizations that have kind of the resources of governments, but they don't have the checks and balances of government. And so um, organizations like that are easy to, it's easy for them to get on the wrong side of government. It's easy for government to go after them because, uh, you know, they don't necessarily have the, the resources 
on that level to to fight back. But at the same time, there's sort of a a smoky enemy that can you know fade out into the jungle when when things aren't going their way. So it's it's the sort of war that can last a long time. And the main character of the book is uh, a woman who's a pararescue, uh, an Air Force pararescueman, who's been fighting these these cartel wars um, and uh, has been recruited on a secret mission to go to space and uh, intervene on uh, some of the activities that are happening there. Well, let's talk more about Alice because she's cool. Um, she is, tell us about, I mean, I, I, I've heard and know about the pararescue kind of the, the Air Force uh, sort of special forces. Uh, tell us about that though, that's, that's cool. Um, and Alice is one of them. Right. Well, the, the Air Force pararescuemen are really the most elite uh, of the of the U.S. Special Forces, which means they're probably the most elite special force in the world. And ironically, their job is not to shoot people at all, although I'm sure they sometimes do. Um, they're not they don't get a lot of press and that's probably good for them, but they're present in, in nearly all covert operations, because when people get shot up, or otherwise injured during a covert operation, it's the Air Force pararescuemen who pull them out. Uh, and so they have to be, uh, they have to have all the capabilities of all the special forces to be able to, to operate in all the environments where all the special forces go. Uh, and they do have to be able to defend themselves, but they also, they're doctors, they're nurses, they're paramedics. Um, so they have this fantastic set of, of skills. Uh, and so it's very logical that if you wanted to recruit somebody to do special operations in space, uh, uh, pararescue would be a, a logical choice. And in this particular case, she's infiltrating a space station full of women. So a female pararescue <laughs> is, uh, you know, who, who you want to recruit for that. Yeah, well, you need, um, yeah. The, um, one of the cool things about it, I, I love the, um, the, the flashback where we we see that she has um, rescued two people in in freefall um, and, and from parachute tangles and such while she was herself um, fall it, it, it kind of reminded me of Keanu Reeves diving out of the plane in uh, in Point Break the way that uh, you described one of those rescues. Yeah, I mean training accidents are pretty common and uh, you know also during during special operations, uh, you know, accidents and fatalities are are uh, maybe underreported, but they certainly do happen. Um, and so, that kind of if you're jump, jumping out of airplanes for a living, you you'd see that kind of incident happen around you, uh, you know, potentially more than once if you're doing it over an extended period of time. Um, and you know. One of the things about Alice, the, the publisher's weekly review said that she was almost incompetent uh, at, this, at this job that, that she's been recruited to do, uh, but that she has this sort of can-do attitude, that she's, she's sticking with it even though she's incompetent. And I think that, that the publisher's weekly missed the point entirely. She's not at all incompetent. She's a, an extremely competent person, but the standard that she's measuring herself against is so high that uh, she doesn't ever feel like she quite measures yeah. up. She's her own 
the harshest judge, but uh, right. she's pretty exactly. cool. <laughs> so, uh, so this is uh, maybe we better talk about the Four Horsemen a little bit more. Tell us about um, Igbal Renz, Iggy Renz, um, because this is where she's bound. Right. Um, well, uh, yeah. without without tipping my hand too much, I'll say that that Iqbal Renz has a a, a public image uh, that's somewhat at odds with with what he's actually up to, um, but that's sort of discovered along the way. Uh, uh, Renz is kind of the first of the of the uh, first and uh, you know most kind of eccentric in some ways of the uh, of the horsemen. He's a trillionaire. He's decided to start his own space program. And he's gone straight into asteroid mining. And now he's constructing uh, a, a giant solar collector at the uh, L1 Lagrange point between the Earth and the sun. And he's doing this for a couple of different reasons. Uh, number one, it's so he can have access to vast amounts of electrical power. Um, Number two, because it because this this uh, solar collector sits between the uh, the Earth and the Sun, it's capable of cutting down the amount of sunlight that's reaching the Earth and therefore fighting global warming. Uh, and the shade starts out pretty small, uh, uh, but it, by the time the the story begins, it's the size of Colorado, and the governments of Earth are extremely alarmed because it's continuing to grow at a substantial rate. And it's capable of uh, not only affecting the climate uh, of the earth as a whole, but of kind of selectively affecting the climates of, of particular regions. Uh, and this is a power that no one in history has ever had before. And uh, the governments of earth are not amused. Well, it's, um, it, it's sort of a semi-see-through. I picture it as like this giant soft contact lens. Um, I don't know if that's. Yeah, I mean it, it, it's a, it's very thin. Uh, uh, you know, it's it's uh, the whole. Although it's the size of, of Colorado, the whole thing only weighs about as much as an aircraft carrier. Uh, so it's a it's a very kind of flimsy structure, uh, but very sophisticated also because it's it's not only blocking sunlight, but it's harvesting sunlight and converting it into electricity and then transporting it. So it's it's got a lot of layers that are doing a lot of different things. And uh, the other thing that's that's interesting about the uh, uh, ESL One Shade Station is that it's crewed mostly by women. And, you know, the word on the street is this is because Iqbal Renz is a, is a huge pervert and, and these women are his harem. Um, but the truth is a little bit more complicated than that. Um, well, tell us tell us what the legend is to start with, because it, it's it kind of interesting, and that's how the characters, so Alice and, and the other three sort of women that we start with, um, think that's what they think they might be getting into. Sure, sure. Um, well, as the Shade Station is a is a space colony, it's a growing facility it's growing sort of haphazardly because it's all on zero gravity and there's no there are no structural requirements really so they're just kind of sticking on modules wherever they'll go but they're producing modules you know at a at a fantastic rate and selling them to to the other horsemen um, 
so they have access to a, a lot of resources. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's a space colony, and the idea is that in order to sign up uh, to to go there, you have to be female and you have to be willing to get pregnant. Um, there are a few men that work there, but but mostly the idea is that uh, it's a it's a space station crewed by women who are willing to become pregnant uh, and and live in space for the rest of their lives. Uh, and so the the you know it doesn't look good on paper. It doesn't look good. He's he's got <laughs> this uh, one guy surrounded of by a lot of women. James Bond. Villain. Right. It's it's it it looks very sort of uh, Blofeld, you know, James Bond villain kind of thing, at least from, from a vantage point on Earth looking up, uh, the whole thing seems extremely sketchy. Uh, but there's more going on there than meets the eye. And there's kind of an assumption that who they're going to get, who the father that they're going to get pregnant by will be Iggy. Um, that, that's, that's what they, that, they've heard, at least. So. That's what they've heard, but it, that's not specified in their contracts. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because it wouldn't be, even if it were true. <laughs> so, so, um, so Ig, Iggy is um, is I, I I can think of a space entrepreneur who he reminds me of greatly. Um, <laughs> if, well, if again, can... I'm not I'm not commenting uh, on. Uh, you know, no, no one person uh, is the inspiration for any one yeah. of these of these four horsemen. Obviously, obviously, perhaps personality type that um, that he reminds. <laughs> Put it that way. And so, all right. So the the fear is is that this thing can be opaque um, and even blot out the sun from the earth if it gets big enough. Or used as a weapon in some way. Yeah, I mean, as a sort of a you know, um, not so much a weapon as uh, it, it's an economic weapon. It has the ability to influence the weather. It has the ability to influence the amount of sunlight that's reaching particular regions. Now, the effect is pretty small. Uh, you know, you think, oh, it's the size of Colorado, and that's that's huge, but. The elbow on the Grange point is pretty far away, so the amount the, the uh, amount of uh, sunlight that this thing is able to cut out is is a you know a, a small fraction of one percent, um, but still, that's enough to have an effect. So, what about the other horsemen, uh, especially uh, uh, our our Russian uh, what's his name Oli uh, Orlov, Orlov. Orlov, yeah. Let me let me talk about the others first, and I'll okay. talk about Orlov right. last. Uh, All right. In a lot of ways, he's my favorite. Uh, but um, you've got Dan Bezeman, who has kind of staked out Mars in the same way that that uh, Lawrence Edgar Killian has staked out the Moon. Mars is farther away, and so in order to get to Mars, you have to build a spaceship, and you have to figure out who you're taking to Mars. And so there's this whole kind of reality show where people who are trying out for the job are getting donations um, and whoever is best at, at convincing people to, to give them donations are the people that are in, in on the leaderboard to actually get, get uh, uh, you know, a seat on, on, the, on the ship. There are a hundred people that are going to Mars and 
yeah, that's a that's a round number that's been used before, and that's you know, uh, life imitates art, imitating life, imitating art. Uh, but the colony itself on Mars is being built robotically. Um, so he's already landing resources on Mars and he's already got uh, robots, telerobots and, and autonomous robots that are, that are building stuff there. So when the people land, there will already be a community for them there. It's called Ant Olympus because it's on sort of the opposite side of the planet from Mount Olympus. And Mount Olympus is the tallest point on the planet. And this is perhaps not coincidentally the lowest point on the planet. Um, there's a theory that the Tharsis bottle on Mars was formed by a large impact event. Uh, and you can see there's a dent on one side of the planet and there's a bulge on the other side. Um, Ant Olympus is a crater at the lowest point of that dent. And the reason for that selection is because that's the most uh, Earth-like environment that you can find on Mars. Now, most Earth-like is still not very Earth-like, but uh, it gets warm enough there to uh, uh, melt the uh, uh, sort of permafrost there. The, uh, the ground can get muddy on warm days uh, and you can see clouds in the sky and, and things like that. So it's a logical place where people would wanna go. Yeah. Um, and meanwhile, you have, you have Lawrence Edgar Killian who, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a knight, uh, in, you know, and um, he is a Catholic. And so he's got his own uh, moon base that's harvesting ice from the lunar south pole. Uh, but he's also got a second moon base that he's built, which is a, a monastery. Um, and so the St. Joseph of Cupertino Monastery uh, is the, the first monastery uh, in space. And the, the goal there is much like medieval monasteries. In a, back in the Middle Ages, the, when, the Romans, when the Roman Empire collapsed and the Romans pulled out, civilization collapsed um, across vast swaths of Europe. And the monasteries were really the, the preservers of, of culture. They preserved knowledge, not just kind of esoteric mathematics and things like that, but agricultural knowledge and anatomical knowledge, all the kinds of things that were known in Roman times uh, that were forgotten in medieval times. They were remembered in the monasteries. And then as the Renaissance rolled around, the monasteries became like universities. They were able to finally transfer that knowledge back to the world. And the St. Joseph of Cupertino Monastery has a similar mission. Their job is to figure out how to live in space forever. You know, the people that are going there are never, never coming back to earth. Their job is to figure it out and then teach others. Um, and, and uh, our main character there is, uh, is Brother Michael Jablonski, or Jablonski, who's, who's got quite a sense of humor. He writes to his, um, his, his, his boss and uh, at least platonic paramour uh, sort of, uh, maybe he's joking, I don't know, but um, he, he's, he's funny. Um, and, and that is sort of, uh, in a way, it's a, it's comic relief in the novel, but it's also, um, it, you, you get a lot of info drop in there, cool moon stuff um, that, that you work in. He's, for instance, trying to figure out what will grow in lunar soil, right? Right, right. Um, you know, and there is, there is um, some good evidence here on Earth that there are 
there are a few things that will grow in unmodified lunar soil. Uh, it's tricky. Uh, that, that soil is very impoverished in a lot of nutrients. Um, so plants yeah. that are... Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's, that's an example of, of what, the, what the monks there are doing, uh, is trying to figure out what will grow and how to grow it. Um, and to not only that, but to, to kind of develop their own strains of plants that, that are specialized for growing in lunar soil. I really liked his is the letter that's a day in the life of the monastery, um, which really gets a lot of cool details in of what a living on the moon would require and the kind of shielding that they have and uh, and what they do during the day and the kind of clothing they wear and the fact that that washing is a big deal, um, right? Hard to do. Yeah, I mean a, a detail that we don't think about very much here on Earth. Um, you know, we're we've got dust and, and dirt and, and sand all over the place and we don't really think about it, but that's because it's been worn down by wind and rain and, and time. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a dangerous material, but on, on the moon, the dust consists of tiny little uh, uh, arrowheads, microscopic arrowheads that haven't been worn down by anything. And so the dust is, uh, is carcinogenic, it's toxic. It will make your nose run and your eyes water and your, it'll give you a cough. Uh, it acts like asbestos in the body. It's, it's very inflammatory. And so dealing with that dust, especially if you're going outside, if you're going in and out all the time, dealing with that dust is a, is a major fact of life. You know, they don't let it stop them. They're not saying, oh, because it's a carcinogen, we can't live here. They are living there, but they have to deal with it. They have to constantly uh, do things to minimize that risk. Same with the radiation. They have a lot of things uh, that they kind of have to do all the time to uh, to minimize that risk. But they're the guinea pigs. Their their job is to to figure all that out so that other people don't have to um, experiment. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So tell us about the uh, the fourth horseman. Have we we covered the first three, right? Um, yeah. You got baseman. Yeah. yeah. So Grigory Orlov. Uh, Grigory Orlov is a um, he's ethnically Russian, um, and he comes from an oil family, and you know the the Russian oil business is a very like sort of literally cutthroat business. Um, it's run by what we would consider here in the West to be organized crime. Uh, so his father was an oil baron and he grew up, uh, uh, he, he, his, he was an oil baron who became a, a deuterium baron uh, and, and Grigory is trying to become uh, also a, a tritium baron. But, um, you know, unlike the, the uh, the other horsemen, he's not really coming from a place of optimism and open spirit. Uh, he's really coming from a place of conquest. Uh, and so he has set up his own asteroid mining uh, facilities uh, and he set up a, a, a depot at the uh, L2 Lagrange point. Um, no, sorry, the L1 Lagrange point between the, the uh, Earth and the Moon, um, and 
he's manufacturing fuel and selling fuel and, and uh, critical gases like nitrogen uh, and selling them to other facilities in space. So for example, the moon is almost completely dependent. The moon has its own source of water. Uh, so they've got, you know, hydrogen and oxygen and they've got all the, all the minerals of the moon, but they have almost no access to carbon and they have almost no access to nitrogen. Uh, so these things are extremely valuable on the moon and Orlov Petrochemical supplies those. Uh, and they supply fuel for the Mars ship that Dan Besiman is building. And they supply materials to ESL-1 Shade Station also. Um, but it's very sort of monopolistic. Uh, they charge high prices uh, that are sort of onerous to, to other people. And early in the book, uh, uh, as, as the uh, governments of Earth begin to, to tighten their grip, um, they don't like what's going on here. And so there's a, an embargo uh, and, a, and a naval blockade that keeps the um, uh, materials. For example, rockets are built in Africa, but they're launched in South America. Naval blockade prevents the rockets that have already been built from being sent to South America. And so a lot of the um, space resources of the horsemen are soon to be grounded and um, this is something of great concern to everyone. But Orlov, instead of seeing this as a problem, sees it as an advantage. Uh, and he uses this as leverage to influence the fortunes of the other horsemen. Um, and so you see this kind of gleefully predatory uh, action on his part. Um, and I like him because he's, he's unrepentant. <clears throat> He's a fun character um, to write because he does bad things, not like really bad. He's not a mass murderer. He's not a, you know, a rapist or anything like that. But he he likes to win, and he specifically likes for other people to lose. Um, and you know, he uh, he doesn't wring his hands at the unfairness of it all. Yeah. Uh, well, so, I mean, he, he's, he sees he's himself got a as a hero of sorts, and that, yeah, that, and in his own mind, um, in that, um, if if he doesn't do it, somebody else will. And he's, um, and he, when he sees an opportunity, he feels bad if he doesn't grasp it and go for it, like uh, cornering a, a cornering a product and making people pay through the nose. He would. He would go to sleep sad if he hadn't done that, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. A lost and, opportunity. You know, <laughs> right. And and the whole reason he's in space, he he'll even admit uh during a couple of points in the story that that his resources in space do not provide a large amount of his cash flow. Most of his cash flow. Uh, comes from Earth, from earthly resources, from oil and deuterium and other things that are available on Earth. They're produced on Earth. They're sold on Earth. That's where most of his money comes from. But he's in space because that's the future. And he doesn't want to let someone else control the future. He wants to control the future. Um, so yeah, that's that's why he's there. And that's why when he realizes that the, uh, the naval blockade is about to ground his his ships, he heads to space right away because he doesn't want to be 
kept away from his future in that way. Um, mm -hmm. But he's also a guy with a strong chin. He's a guy who spends a lot of time in the gym, uh, you know, or or punching a, a, a punching bag, things yeah. like that. Or his subordinate. You know, <laughs> yeah. a Russian. You know. Yeah. <laughs> or his subordinates, yes. So um, this, I, so some of the governments on Earth are sending up a mission, um, and they are they. This is the beginning of the book, so we're not really giving anything, and it's also in the description on the jacket. So they're sending up. Um, they've infiltrated the women um, that are going up, and and they put, for instance, um, Alice, um, and there's uh, a couple of others that we meet, Donna. Obata, who's a very interesting character, can you tell us a little. We've talked about Alice, let's talk about Donna, who's kind of the the yang to Donna Zian, I guess, or or whatever. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, Alice is, uh, you know, a uh, an Air Force medic who's been recruited to do this kind of clandestine mission. Um, Donna Obata is a is a professional operative. Uh, She's, uh, you know, like like Alice, she's in her late twenties, but she's been groomed since her her late teens to be this sort of uh, very dangerous, very charming, very fluid person uh, who, uh, you know, speaks a lot of languages and can operate a lot of weapons and and things like that. Um, and she's very skilled at hand to hand combat and. You know, things like that. So uh, when Alice looks at Donna, she feels, well, again, she sets a very high bar for herself. She looks at Donna and sees somebody who's a real professional, whereas she, Alice, is an amateur. Um, well, she's a professional sociopath, that's for sure. She's very good at looking out for Donna. Yeah, she's, she is not a nice person. Um, but uh, I hope this doesn't give too much away. Uh, she and and uh, uh, Grigory Orlov have have some some common interests uh, and find that their interests are aligned. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's another uh, that's a that's a pairing that I think is is uh, fun to write about and I hope fun to read about. Yeah. There's, I mean, we should talk a little bit about the pros. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, of, of fun hijinks. There's a, there's a arch tone perhaps to, uh, to, to some of the storytelling that's fun. Um, it, it's not all grim going forward in the vacuum of space in any moment you might, uh, I mean, and I think it stems from the sort of entrepreneurial, um, hopeful nature of the whole thing, even though these guys are trying to, you know, they're, they're, they're way too rich for their own good and, and bad things are happening in places and difficulties arise. It's still fun because we're in space. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, even, uh, even the, uh, the people that are sent to at least, you know, nominally put a stop to it, um, they're not entirely immune to that either, uh, to the, the, the excitement of uh, of space, um, and you know uh, these 
horsemen have something to offer that the earth does not, uh, which is this kind of open-ended, expansive, can-do, uh, you know, it's, it, it really is a frontier. It's a very lively frontier um, that has a lot of energy, literally has a lot of energy um, and, and a lot of resources and not a lot of oversight. And, you know, that's, that's a temptation. Even if you're sent there to put a stop to that, there is, there is a, a temptation. To have fun, no matter <laughs> in the moment, <laughs> to, to revel um and perhaps to uh to uh, get it on with um with with a starship with a spaceship captain or two um <laughs> or others yeah, the, <laughs> the uh the cover um you know clearly emphasizes the uh, i think that's a great cover by the way dave seeley did a fantastic job um the you you mentioned the fun aspect and I think it is fun and I think it's sexy. I think it, there's, there's a kind of a tone of, of eroticism that runs through a lot of the story, but it's also creepy um, when, when people have a lot of power over you personally, that's very creepy. And I think that cover perfectly captures the, the fun, expansive, sexy creepiness of the, of the, uh, the whole kind of scenario. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of, you have to think about what you're wearing um, or and there's a lot of reason not to wear much. So, you, you do. Yeah, well, the, and we have space underwear that's printed. Um. Right, the 3D printed space underwear. Um, it's very practical uh, because doing laundry in space turns out is extremely difficult. Uh, it consumes a lot of water, it, it consumes a lot of power and those things, and it takes space and it takes human labor and all these things are in short supply. So what you really need out of space underwear is something that can go a long time between washings, um, something that doesn't absorb odors, uh, that uh, provides a good barrier so that the sensitive parts of your body don't rub on spacesuits or, or jumpsuits or, or what have you. Um, so, you know, you have, you have this, this need for this very particular kind of underwear. Um, but, you know, Dave Seeley just went ahead and also made it sexy. So, okay. Yeah, uh, so, um, well, the, um, the, there, there are portions of the book we don't want to talk about, but it's really cool because Iggy is up to, to something um, that's either amazing or incredibly foolhardy. Um, and uh, there's a lot of revelation throughout the book about, about what that may be as Alice um, gets closer to the truth and also deals with um, with some traitors and, uh, and, and other bad things. It's really cool um, little narrative that neatly ties itself up at the end with, um, with what's going on. Uh, maybe uh, the, the one other thing that uh, Iggy does DMT and some other drug concoctions. And I take it that a lot of people in Silicon Valley are experimenting with this crap, um, even as we speak, um, and trying to, to, you know, in a 60s, almost 60s fashion, but very techy, um, raise their consciousness and open up to the, uh, to the, you know, the space aliens through the 
ionosphere or whatever the hell. Yeah, uh, ayahuasca is very huge in, in Silicon Valley right now. And ayahuasca contains DMT. Um, but uh, when you talk ayahuasca about the DMT- vine from, from South America that's brewed into it, yeah. Right, right. Um, but one of the things when I was when I was sort of dreaming up Igbal Renz as a character, um, I was thinking about this this kind of link between techie people and DMT. Um, and there's a peculiar property of DMT that um, people who take it uh, report a state of uh, uh, consciousness, a state of being that is doesn't translate uh, into into language very well. Um, but there are people there. There are beings of some sort there that are say a lot of happy to see people. you. And, yeah. I mean, that's what I've heard that that there's often a yeah they get of... described as yeah. right right uh, you know they're elves they're they're uh, spirits they're ghosts they're angels they're demons uh, people report them differently but there's this very strong sense that during a DMT high you go to a different place and there's someone there um, and I just thought what if that were true. Uh, or even if it weren't true, what if somebody with a lot of resources believed it was true? Uh, and so that that was kind of part of the inspiration of of, uh, of Igbal. But it's also part of what makes him so frightening to the governments of Earth. You have this this guy with his own space station and his own solar shade and his his crew of of sexy women, uh, and he's a drug addict. It just doesn't. It doesn't look good. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of ways it could go sideways, I guess. So, um, well, uh, what what are you working on at the moment? Uh, I'm I'm working on a, a sequel to Rich Man's Sky. It's called Poor Man's Sky, uh, and it deals with uh, sort of a, the flip side of some of the same situations. Um, in uh, in Rich Man's Sky, you have these four horsemen that are kind of calling the shots and you have governments that are that are uh, trying to assert their own their own dominance. Um, and in Poor Man's Sky, uh, it's a little bit more personal. You have labor disputes and you have the people that are competing for this, um, uh, this Mars colony. Uh, and, you know, if you think about that, if, if people are competing to participate in the biggest adventure that the human race has ever seen. If you're uh, competing for a slot on that spaceship and there's somebody in front of you in that competition, if you're one spot away, you know, it, the way it works, uh, you have to compete for a particular job. So even janitor, if you wanna be the janitor on Mars, you have to compete for it. And the guy who uh, is in the lead to be the janitor is a billionaire. He's selling his company to raise the money to <laughs> sponsor himself for this job of janitor, because janitor on Mars is better than than billionaire on Earth. Um, I think about the the people that are in second place, the people that are in third or fourth place, um, that's the sort of thing that that people get killed over. That's the sort of thing that murders get committed over, and that's how Poor Man's Sky starts: is with somebody dying with a 
candidate for Ant Olympus uh, dying under mysterious circumstances on the moon, in fact, at St. Joseph of Cupertino Monastery. Um, and so that's kind of the jumping off point for this a little bit darker exploration of, of what it's like when you're not the trillionaire. Yeah. Uh, well, I hope we see more of, uh, of Brother Yablonsky because he's fun. Um, and, and I hope he shows Well, us. I'll say that the personality that he has when he's writing and the personality that he has in person are, are not quite the same. And how could they be? Uh, you know, and you see this a lot. You, there are people that I know who write very flamboyantly. And when you meet them, they're just some guy uh, or girl. Uh, and uh, Brother Michael is a bit like that. Um, when you meet him, he's, he seems a little ordinary, but, but you get the sense that there's, that yeah. there's something a little bit, uh, little bit magical about him. He's got a rich inner life that perhaps <laughs> yes. that shows every once in a while. Well, out now at Booksellers is um, Rich Man's Sky by Will McCarthy with the cool cover and the, the nice uh, fo foiling as well. Space-like foiling <laughs> on the front. So, uh, Will, thank you so much for uh, talking with us about Rich Man's Sky. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's league are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Harrington House, City of Landing, Planet of Manticore, Manticore Binary System. Well, I guess that's everything. Honor Alexander Harrington stood in the quiet library. Rain pounded the skylight overhead. It was barely mid-afternoon, but the overcast day was dark and murky, and somehow it felt cold, despite Landing's warmth. She listened to the rain as she looked around her at all the familiar furnishings, the shelved books, the paintings, the subdued lighting. But she didn't really see any of it, and she looked like a stranger standing in someone else's house, unable to understand how she'd come there. If you're sure, her mother said. Allison stood beside Honor with Catherine in her arms. Raoul was in the nursery. He burst into sobs any time Honor was in the same room as him, clinging to her with desperate strength. She didn't know exactly how it worked, but there was no question that he was able to taste her emotions, whether or not he could truly feel anyone else's. 
She needed to cling to him as desperately as he needed to cling to her, but she couldn't. She couldn't inflict that on him, not now. Not when he was only a baby and no one could possibly explain it to him. And so she'd handed him as gently as she could to Lindsay Phillips and walked out of that nursery, heartbreaking at his sobbed, Mama! Mama! from behind her. Now he lay exhausted in his crib, and the Whitehaven tree cats huddled around him like guardian gargoyles, somehow blunting the worst of his sorrow and fear. Catherine was subdued, obviously aware something dreadful had happened, yet at least she'd been spared the terrible weight of someone else's grief, and Anna reached out to lay a gentle hand on the little girl's head. For a moment, something seemed alive behind the frozen flint of her eyes, but then she took her hand from Catherine's head, and whatever it had been disappeared once again into the ice. I have to get back to the ship. We've got a lot to do, and I don't want to lose the time window. If you're sure, Allison repeated with a very different emphasis, and Honor looked at her. Honor had raised every barrier she could against the emotions of those about her. Her ability to feel what others felt wasn't something she could turn off or on. It simply was an inescapable part of who she'd become over the years. She had learned to adjust the volume, though, and she needed that now. Needed it because the loss and the pain, the fury and the sympathy pouring into her and Nimitz from everyone around them threatened to drag them under. That tide of emotion threatened to break her concentration, threatened to divert her from the task before her, and nothing could be permitted to do that. But her mother's very special anguish could not be escaped. The grief over the death of her beloved twin brother the knowledge of how Jacques' death, especially like this, would hammer all of Alfred Harrington's wounds from the Iwata strike. The aching sense of loss for a son-in-law, and especially a daughter-in-law she'd come to love dearly. The knowledge that dozens of other friends, family, must have died aboard the Beowulf habitats with Jacques and Hamish. And fear, fear for her daughter. I'm sure, mother. There was no emotion in Honor's voice, but she managed a brief caricature of a smile. It vanished quickly, and her nostrils flared as she reached up to the silent grieving tree cat on her shoulder. Like I told Elizabeth, this has to end, and I'm going to end it once and for all. Allison shifted Catherine's weight so she could lay one hand on Honor's arm. I know you are, sweetheart. Her voice was calm, almost serene, despite the tears glittering on her lashes, and she shook her head. I know that, believe me, but you come back to me. Raoul and Catherine need you now more than ever, and your father and I, we'll always need you, Honor. So you come back to us. Mother, I'll be aboard the fleet flagship. She managed another fleeting smile. The Sollies don't have a thing that could touch her in a stand-up fight. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe we just didn't make that clear enough. A very different expression replaced the smile, and her frozen eyes filled with a chill, flickering fire. That's one of the oversights I intend to set right. She felt Allison's concern spike higher, but she refused to allow it in, denied it access to the frozen helium of her purpose. She knew what Allison really meant, knew what her mother really wanted to say was, give me back my daughter and take away this stranger. Give me back the person who still knows how to love, how to care. Give me back my child, 
and give back the mother my grandchildren need. But Honor didn't know if she could do that. She didn't know if anyone could do that. She reached out, touched her mother's cheek very gently, and her thumb brushed away one of Allison's tears. Take care of Daddy and the babies, she said softly. Of course I will. I know. She leaned close, kissed Catherine's cheek, then leaned her forehead against her mother's for a long, still moment. And then Honor Alexander Harrington, Duchess and Steadholder Harrington, turned and walked out of that foyer, into the driving landing rain, down the steps to the waiting air car, without a backward glance. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and the end parts and tasty bits of a very excited alligator that swallowed a python, that swallowed a goat, that swallowed a truck, that swallowed a hijacked shipment of nuclear missile guidance systems, that swallowed a couple of five-year-old iPhones for reasons unknown. Plus, thanks, praise, and gratitude to Will McCarthy, author of Rich Man's Sky. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.